0: Welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm Ray Advani, and I'll be your host for today's episode with Blythe Masters. Blythe is a founding partner at Motive, a fintech-specialized private investment firm that deploys capital as early as the pre-seed and venture stage and as late as the buyout stage. Motive aims to build back or buy the companies that enable the global financial economy. Prior to Motive, Blythe spent 27 years at J.P. Morgan across several different roles, including as CFO of the investment bank. Fun fact, she's credited with being one of the pioneers of the credit default swap. After JP Morgan, Blythe was CEO of Digital Asset Holdings, an enterprise blockchain company responsible for the ASX's post-trade infrastructure replacement project. Having had the pleasure of working with Blythe this summer, I can guarantee that this will be a fascinating conversation. We're going to talk about Blythe's career path that spans over three decades in the financial services industry, her perspective on transformative technologies like Gen AI and how experiences have shaped her investment philosophy at Motive. With that, let's dive in. Welcome to the pod. Where are you calling in from? New York City. It's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So we started out this episode by introducing our listeners to your professional background, but I'd like to start at the very beginning. What are some of those formative experiences that make Blythe who Blythe is today? Well, uh, I think probably a, a good place to start is the fact that
1: I um, started my career uh, pretty young in the sense that um, having completed school uh, in England, which is where I was born and grew up, I, at the age of 18, um, decided to take a gap year. Between Between school and university and I both wanted to travel and have fun and needed a job in order to fund that and funnily enough that is what actually led me in about 1987 to first come across uh, J.P. Morgan although uh, back in those days in London it was known as Morgan Guarantee Trust one of the predecessors of the firm that is today J.P. Morgan Chase. And uh, I literally uh, cold called a a number of London-based banking firms, not really knowing the difference between a commercial bank, an investment bank, a merchant bank, or any other kind of bank for that matter, uh, and was fortunate enough that J.P. Morgan was uh, one of only two firms that responded to those um, outreaches. The other one was Continental Illinois, who promptly went bust not very many years, years later, um, but in any case, I ended up working with J.P. Morgan at the, the grand old age of 18 um, in the late 1980s at a time where uh, the firm was very much uh, involved in, in driving uh, the earliest beginnings uh, of the derivatives markets. Uh, and so at that young age, I got exposure to to markets, to derivatives, to some of the math associated with that and the people working in those spaces who were very much entrepreneurial uh, innovators in their own right. And that was certainly an early and formative experience. I, I found that I loved uh, the experience. It, it was fascinating, a completely different environment from anything I had worked in or around at school or before school. Um, and I had the opportunity to to meet and form relationships with um, a number of individuals who over many many years became Deep relationships, but also great bosses, sponsors, and mentors. Uh, and it all started um, back at that time when I was literally eighteen. So I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Peter Hancock, uh, Bill Demchek, Bill Winters, three people who were all uh, all went on uh, to become notable CEOs in in their own right, and who at different stages and different ways took me under their wing, helped guide me in my career, and um, I'm very grateful to the fact that I had the opportunity to meet them so early on. Oddly enough, all the, through all the years that I worked with J.P. Morgan, I only ever uh, directly reported to uh, a woman once uh, who was Dina Dublin. This was much later on um, in my career. At that time, she was the CFO of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and that was only for a short period of time. But she also proved an important mentor and a great ally and friend. So that was, I think, one of the notable aspects of my career that isn't you know totally standard in terms of the way that I found my way into the industry, more by luck really than by judgment. And that uh, gap year work that I did turned into a series of summer internships. So by the time I graduated with an undergraduate degree in economics, it was really a foregone conclusion that I would stay with JP Morgan for the next part of my career, which is what I did. I think something else I'd point to is that um, I also had uh, my daughter at a very young age. I was uh, 24 when she was born, which makes her 30 now. Uh, you could do the math and figure out how, how old I am if you if you add that all up. But uh, that was uh, younger than most uh, uh, of my other uh, colleagues uh, to have kids, and that decision presented both um, great challenge and. Great opportunity, and I think, in the end, I I was a better mum for having a job throughout uh, the period of being a parent, uh, and I evolved into being a better worker and co-worker and and probably boss uh, for having been a mum at an early age, because I had to learn the arts of compromise <laughs> uh, in ways that perhaps I think I probably would not otherwise have have done. Um, so I think that was also a formative of the way I thought about the balance between work and life and why one works and what's important about working. And then also I became uh, a managing director and uh, was you know, promoted at a very young age. I think I was 28 when I became an MT at JP Morgan. Was uh, at the time given the opportunity at that point to work with a, a coach uh, in order to learn Actually, how to become an effective manager. Most people kept those coaches for a couple of months. I ended up working with that coach for eight years or so, largely because i I needed the help. Uh, learning to be a, a a manager was something that didn't come so naturally to me. It became a skill set, but it was one that I had to work at. And I'm eternally grateful to having had that period of time working with a with a coach who helped me redefine the game. And understand that being a manager wasn't about you know being the boss and getting to cool the shots. It was about how to make your your people you know more productive players, um, which is a fundamental mind shift. Especially when you've grown up on a trading floor, you know, doing deals and and making trades. So it was a, a big shift in mentality. Uh, so those, I think, were some of the things I would point to that were that were important sort of facets of my my early career that 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 ultimately shaped um, the person that I've evolved into today. I could go on for a lot longer because of course it's been many many years. But those are the things I point to.
0: Yeah, and I'd say that, you know, from starting at JP Morgan right out of school to rising up to becoming CFO of the investment bank and now sitting at Motive, how did you really think about navigating these different transitions through your career? That's a really It's a good question. It's a
1: really good question. It's also a question I, I've, I've had a few times, and I I'm, I've never really gotten totally happy with the right way to answer that question because it's obviously, you know, an important, you know, teaching moment um, when you give an answer to a question like that. And yet, on the other hand, I don't want to give, you know, the untruthful impression that I, you know, carefully curated, managed. Studied and, and planned every single career turn and, and transition that I took over the course of many years, because that's just not accurate. I think what really happened was that over time, you know, I developed, I think I had naturally, uh, and then I developed and sustained a capacity uh, for hard work and parallel processing a lot of different things at, at once. An interest in and an appetite for change and innovation, uh, figuring out how to do new things or how to do old things differently, and I would say a willingness to take risks, so to sort of do new things, you know, that weren't slam dunks, and sometimes involved letting go of old things where I was very well established and had you know made my mark, and where I could perhaps have cruised and and and, and done well but where I was, you know, no longer, you know, able to really satisfy that sort of appetite for curiosity and change and innovation. So I think it was really, you know, that I kept those interests alive. And, and I, I have always defined, you know, as part of the most important, you know, criteria for whether or not I'm happy in my job, whether whether that aspect of my personality is still being fed by by the job whether i can get the intellectual curiosity the the learning experience out of a job and so that that made me keep my mind open to new and different things and and you know whether it was a push or a pull you know a jump or a stumble you know a great coup or a, or a disaster i made all sorts of changes over the years and i learned from every one of them and and um, not every career, you know, zig and zag that you take, um, takes you linearly, uh, you know, on some path to greatness. Um, But what they they do do is they they teach you uh, capacity, you know, to learn, to deal with change, to lead through change, and to recognize that that's sort of part of the process and embrace it rather than fear it. Or perhaps put another way to to fear it, uh, because it's only natural, Sometimes to fear change, or to fear things that you're not a master of, but to feel the fear and do it anyway. And in fact, that that um, that little you know phrase that I just used has actually been something of a mantra by which I've lived my professional and to an extent my personal life. You know, feel the fear and do it anyway. You know, when I I left J.P. Morgan, which I did after 27 years. You know, at following the sale of the business that I had built and was running for the bank at the time, the uh, physical commodities business, that act of the sale created, you know, a catalyst for me to consider leaving. But I think what in the end really, you know, inked the decision for me was that I had uh, begun to develop a point of view that I had an entrepreneurial itch that I wanted to scratch and whilst I'd done many new and different things and, and built new things at J.P. Morgan. It had all been in the fabric of a gigantic firm. And, you know, I really wondered whether, you know, I could be um, an innovator and an entrepreneur without the safety blanket that was J.P. Morgan surrounding me, you know, where there were uh, lots of, of course, occasionally bureaucratic processes that prevent you from doing things, but also lots of things that protect you from from making mistakes. And you know, I wanted to. I wanted the chance to do things uh, on my own and to really, uh, te- you know, test out that uh, entrepreneurial uh, inkling that I had. And I'd also developed by then actually a point of view that what was going on in the fintech space was somewhere on the spectrum between gary and exciting, and definitely was underappreciated both by my firm and by our industry, which at that point in time was still very much inwardly looking dealing with the aftermath of the great financial crisis and the financial regulatory reform that came after that which led to a, a period of almost a decade where um, the opportunity to, for innovation was largely stifled by the greater you know, priority of having to deal with this tsunami of incoming uh, changed regulation so that is an example of one, you know, big move that I made when I left JP Morgan. I, you know, I didn't have plans for what I would do next, but it created the space for me able to be able to think about what to do next. And that led to digital asset, which was a a startup, uh, you know, really at ground zero with no no product, no customers, no revenue, no pitch book, you know, no capital for investors, but an idea or the genesis of an idea that this new technology, distributed ledger technology could be used to uh, changed the way that enterprises think about uh, connected and distributed processing in in sh- shared uh, processing um, in financial services. And that led to a really fascinating uh, stint. Four years spent um, running a startup from ground zero through several rounds of financing, the creation of our first product, contracting of our first customers. It was an enormous learning experience. But I can't tell you with a, with a straight face. Um, that i set and 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 planned and and you know purposefully executed that transition uh, it's what felt right at the time when i had you know the opportunity to to lay, to leave jp morgan on good terms and with their support by the way they they ultimately became an investor in in uh in that business uh, that i subsequently uh built and then you know finding my my way to motive was again really about staying curious and wanting to broaden my perspective uh, in the FinTech space, which by that time, so we're talking now at the end of 2019, had gone from being you know, a hunch and a curiosity to being very significant conviction. It was, this was an enormous space where I wanted to spend a significant amount of time focused as an investor. So a long answer to a simple question, but it wasn't all about planning. It was really all about staying open-minded, being willing to take risks, you know, wanting to keep learning and being willing to take a plunge.
0: Yeah. So, you know, you said you didn't carefully curate and plan every transition, but, you know, what really stands out is that there's this concept of compounding that I see within your career where your experiences in your prior role almost seem like they, you know, set you up perfectly to where you are today. How have your prior experiences, you know, at J.P. Morgan and at Digital Asset shaped your approach to investing? Another good question.
1: I I think your your point about compounding is is definitely true. I think I've made some big changes, but I have also stuck with things that I do for extended periods of time, and I do think that's an important uh, point to make, especially for Younger people listening who are thinking about how they navigate their careers. I, I often see today young people uh, jumping from spot to spot um, with great rapidity and I can understand the desire for new frontiers and professional growth and evolution and and obviously life circumstances change and so on. But I do think one of the things that's been important is to to stick at what you're doing for long enough to develop professional resilience um, and professional learning and professional growth, Um, you know, to really master the things that you're, you're uh, prioritizing uh, in a career and and make moves as, as best you can from a position of strength. That's not always possible, but I do think that that helps with that compounding effect if you don't stick at what you're doing for long enough to demonstrate that resilience and that fortitude, then you also often miss the opportunity to really learn from the experience, you know, that which you needed to learn. And learning is not just about content and domain knowledge. It's also about evolving political capital and learning how to work with people and how to get your own way whilst not doing that to the detriment of others, how to how to get people to follow you those sorts of things it takes time uh, to earn trust and earn followership and earn the right to lead effectively so I think that's that's an important point in terms of the question you know how my prior experiences shaped my approach to my current role in investing you know I I think uh, over the years you know I should point out that I've not just you know, lived through, but in in many cases, been right there at the scene of some incredibly seismic shifts in the firm and/or the industry within which I was operating. You know, I was I was there uh, when J.P. Morgan and Chase combined. That was a complex and controversial and um, challenging merger that really profoundly changed both firms and coincided with a. With a very violent period of movement and correction in markets, so this was around about two thousand one, when in addition to September eleventh, uh, which in itself was obviously a, I mean, devastating and unique experience to live through, but that that period uh, in markets was also marked by you know some some extreme. Shifts in value and volatility. So there was the the, the bursting of the dot com bubble, the, the the bursting of the merchant energy uh, bubble. There was a significant correlated downturn in leverage credit and in private equity. And at that term, JP Morgan, or what had now become JP Morgan Chase, underperformed its peer group in the industry very uh, significantly. And that experience of living through September 11th a major market correction or series of corrections, a very significant merger, a very painful merger that wasn't particularly well executed in the first instance, uh, really formed my views on on many things, both risk management, corporate structure, you know what makes a good merger and and not a good merger. I took all of those learnings with me over the next you know many years and and over the next many years, you know I then, you know, was there when Bank One uh, merged with J.P. Morgan Chase, which of course brought the leadership of of Jamie Dimon, uh, unquestionably one of the most talented uh, banking leaders of his generation, quite possibly of all time, who I worked uh, closely with and and got to see operate. I saw him navigate the firm through completing the merger of J.P. Morgan and Chase, and and of course Bank One, but I also saw him begin to sound the alarm bells uh in I think it was probably late two thousand five certainly two thousand and six and into the beginning of two thousand and seven about the state of uh, consumer credit quality uh the extent of over leverage the challenges in the subprime mortgage and home equity markets and so on and that combined with the lessons that JP Morgan and Chase had learned in two thousand and one you know meant that Unlike uh, the experience of being at the bottom of the barrel, the new JP Morgan came through the great financial crisis of 7 08 at the very top of the barrel uh, and went from strength to strength. And, and that strength manifested itself in us being able to absorb Bear Stearns uh, and then later Washington Mutual over a weekend. And you know to navigate the extraordinary re-regulation of the industry in terms of Dodd-Frank and Mifid and Mifir and all of the related uh, regulatory changes around the world, um, the massive increase in capital requirements, uh, reduction in leverage, uh, imposition of uh, all sorts of new constraints that added costs, uh, you know, this the firm was able to navigate through all of that uh, from a position of relative strength, uh, you know, as our competitors were. In some cases, failing; in other other cases, you know, becoming bank holding companies over a weekend and fundamentally changing their regulatory environment. So much change went on; it was a fascinating and le- learning experience. And then, what began began to happen was, you know, the uh, the fintech era began. It had happened quietly. You know, blockchain was born out of the uh, great financial crisis in 09. But what was going, you know, all also happened that year, as you, you may remember, was to, you know the advent of uh, the iPhone and the beginning of mobile everything, um, the internet coming of age, broadband, you know, uh, strengthening, uh, e-commerce becoming a, a reality, not just a hype. Uh, some amazing changes afoot, um, and then the advent of non-bank financial services companies, these fintech companies that were. Leveraging technology to be better at banking than banks were was a really you know fascinating you know period. and and while this was all going on, the chaos that I described that ensued following the great financial crisis you know distracted the big banks. Uh, they they were necessarily focusing on more existential things uh, while fintechs were, Coming along and quietly, or not so quietly, um, eroding some of the the competitive moat that had protected banks for so many years, and that opened up a really another really interesting um, decade of uh, innovation and change um, that fascinated me. As I mentioned earlier, that's what led to eventually one of the factors that led to my deciding to leave JP Morgan and really since doing that, I have more or less exclusively dedicated my career to uh, the world of Fintech and we've seen of course you know uh, you know craziness uh, and brilliance and criminality all at once in that space um which has been fascinating but I think if you if you add up all of these different learnings that have sort of formed my career and I've been able to sort of incorporate and and compound as you put it as I've uh evolved into being now a professional investor in the space it's helped develop a perspective on you know the the utmost importance of understanding the context and the implications of what uh, we do in financial services and with financial technology that serves financial services businesses I think you know to really believe in what you do uh, to enjoy what you do to get satisfaction out of it you at least in my case you know really need to to know that there's purpose uh, behind what you do Uh, and sometimes with all of these seismic events that I've been talking about it was you know or would have been easy to lose sight of, you know, what are the foundations for why finance matters? You know, ultimately financial services exist to drive capital, which ultimately is people's savings into productive uses in the hands of of firms that can, can, can productively use that capital. And that translates into growth, it translates into jobs, it translates into better, cheaper products for consumers, it translates into choice. Employment mobility, tax dollars and the ability for the public sector to fund the things that it needs to do. You know, finance is an engine of economic development and and growth. And financial technology increasingly is is the engine that enables finance, not just finance performed by financial services company, but also embedded finance. so financial capabilities uh, capabilities embedded in other, non-financial businesses. And it's really um, all of that context and understanding of, you know, why it is that things work the way that they do and how it is that things work and why it is that they are regulated the way that they're regulated and what can go wrong when you lose sight of the fundamental tenets of how to do business responsibly and with an eye on the broader consequences, the systemic consequences of what you're doing, the long-term consequences of what you're doing. When you lose sight of that, having seen what can go wrong when things go wrong really gives you a sense of purpose and conviction and what does it mean to innovate in a constructive way. Um, And what we do in in our industry as investors in, in financial technology is really ultimately all about driving financial empowerment and inclusion. It's about improving efficiency and and broadening the basis for wealth creation. It's about um, enabling retirement security. And at a bigger picture level, it's about the stability of nations. And for me, those are the lessons that over a multi-decade career, you know, in many cases, learning the hard way, um, living through periods where we have not lived up as an industry to that expectation that has really uh, helped form my views on the importance of what we do. It's not just about making money or making the best bets, it's also about doing what we do for the right reasons and doing it in the right way.
0: You've clearly had a front row seat to some of the most transformational events in this industry. So I guess, quick, quick rapid fire question, Financial services now versus when you started your career, what's changed and what stayed the same? Well, everything and nothing. <laughs> That's the rapid-fire answer. I mean, I think um,
1: you know. So to, to illustrate what I mean by everything, you know, when when I first joined J.P. Morgan, for example, it was a twelve thousand-person-strong uh, company uh, globally. It was a commercial bank, so it uh, was no investment banking capabilities really to speak of it was still triple a rated and its you know lines of business were were very narrowly defined it was principally lending and certain capital markets activities related to fixed income and derivatives and that was you know more, more or less it you know that that company today is almost 300,000 people maybe more than that it's at least as much a technology firm as it is at a at a financial services firm and there's nothing that happens in financial services that it isn't somehow in, involved in somewhere in the world. And that scale of change is not just happened at JP Morgan, it's happened all over the place. You know, In the meantime, technology has driven so much change. Uh, the electronification of every market including the birth of new markets that didn't exist uh, when I started out in finance. So everything that's happening in and around environmental commodities is obviously new and powerful and interesting. Mm-hmm but wasn't there, um, the development of platform businesses, uh, the fact that everything we do we could do you know, electronically today, um, the digitization of, of processes, communication of execution, the, the fact that you can conduct your financial life whether you're um, an institution or an individual using very powerful but very small computer that you can hold in the palm of your hand. Is, is radical difference. You know, when I started in banking, we didn't have email. Uh, the memos that went around were, you know, photocopied on yellow sheets of paper and they were placed on everybody's desktop every morning. That's how you read the news, the news that was internal and external there were no networked computers believe it or not you know people who had more than one floppy disk drive in their computer workstation were the networkers because people you know would bring one disk and copy it to another disk that's how information was disseminated it's pretty shocking to think about that you know the world pre-email pre-mobile pre-networks it's amazing you know and yet in other ways you know a lot of other things haven't changed um just the Capital markets and, and financial services are still fundamentally serving the same uh, economic purpose. They do it with more efficiency, but they remain inefficient. And also some of the you know the less attractive features of, of our world you know have uh, taken longer than they should to really be addressed. So this is still a male dominated industry. That's true whether you're talking about financial services and technology or fintech. It is still the case uh that financial inclusion or other exclusion uh lack of inclusion is is you know profoundly a problem in fact in some ways the increasing costs of regulatory compliance particularly around kyc aml bank secrecy act all of that stuff has increased the cost of serving the individual uh, in financial services and that has meant that the unbanked and underbanked population, if anything, has grown. And as technology becomes a bigger part of the uh, landscape, and this is globally. It turns out that access to financial services, which is you know has a gender bias, is also true in access to technology, which has a, another gender bias. And so, you know, some of the issues that we uh, struggle with around diversity, equity, and inclusion as it relates to the financial services and fintech sector, you know, are still major challenges. Although I think there are green shoots and there's, you know, there's great promise uh, in uh, the fact that fintech uh, as an industry uh, is in many ways succeeding in driving, you know, ruthless competition through an industry that in, in many ways had become complacent and that competition is driving, you know, some progress in terms of financial inclusion, although not nearly as much as I think we would like to have witnessed.
0: So a lot has changed, a lot has not changed. Yeah, you know, one thing that you've emphasized throughout this conversation has been the rise of technology within financial services, which is core to motives thesis. And, you know, what one thing that stood out to me at Motive is just it's unique thinking around investable opportunities it isn't a traditional B fund that buys a business, trims the fat and exits at, at a higher multiple. There's a huge emphasis on value creation, specifically through leveraging technology. Can you elaborate on this and provide an example of a company that you invested in where this played out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know what you've just described about Motive is is what attracted me to uh, the company. Um, I've been here now since December 2019. And as you might imagine, given how many years I spent uh, working at a big bank, I, I knew the, the private equity industry quite well through my various interactions over the years. Um, and by contrast motive was uh, smaller, much younger. Um, when I f- first joined it, it just raised its um, f- first fund, just closed the final close of its first fund flagship fund. And so it was a it was a bit of a bet to join motive. but um when I met Rob Havert, who's our founder and managing partner, a number of things stood out. First of all, he was not a sort of conventional Wall Street type. you know he was not a financial engineer. Uh, who'd grown up in the financial engineering rooms. This was he was and is and remains a serial entrepreneur. He built his first business in a garage in his early twenties, and won a multi-billion-dollar contract to to build what is today, believe it or not, um, CLS, which stands for Continuous Link Settlement, which is one of the biggest market infrastructures in the world that handles the settlement um, of go global foreign exchange flows for the world and, and for the central banks of the world. Astonishing that a you know, kid in a garage in Belgium could win a contract like that. He teamed up with IBM and inevitably sold his company to them. And then shortly thereafter started another company, which became Capco, which is, I don't know, it's probably got 20, 30,000 alumni around the world. Now it's one of the preeminent advisors to financial services firms in the technology space ultimately was sold to FIS which Rob helped run for a number of years and then he came to start uh, Motive and he brought with him the vision of an entrepreneur and I thought that 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 vision was super differentiated. So you know firstly and and perhaps foremost uh, is the fact that our belief is that uh, to be great fintech investors you need to specialize. This is a gigantic space it's uh, by our estimates uh, a 10 trillion dollar sector or will be by about 2030 if you include both uh, direct spend by financial services and indirect spend by our embedded finance on technology. It's hugely complex uh, and hugely diverse and there's a huge amount of innovation uh, underway Um, yet uh, there are enormous um, incumbent uh, businesses process in some cases unimaginably large quantities of activity uh DtCC would be a great example you know the largest market infrastructure in the world it, it processes 1.5 quadrillion US dollars notional business a year that has 15 zeros on the end of it to put it in context it's not even really possible to get your mind around the numbers that big um and at the other end of the spectrum you've got you know people building apps for iPhones that have changed the way that um life works in Africa. Think about E-Pesa, for example. So it's an enormous space and I think specialization in this context is um, appropriate and necessary to really understand where innovation comes from. The, the, and the second thing um, that is um, unique about motive is is the operating model where we we refer to this loosely as the IOI model, which stands for investors operators and innovators. And what that means is that as with any professional investment firm of course we have a deep uh, bench of investment talent as you would expect but what we over index on relative to many others is in-house operating talent and in-house innovation capability. So on the operating talent what this means is uh, the ownership and leadership of the firm and of the transactions we do is is, is driven very much by individuals who have operating backgrounds um, that have built, bought, sold, run, grown, scaled uh, financial services and fintech businesses all the way from microscopic startups all the way to multi decade 1000000000 dollars public companies. And combined with that, a very large in-house technology capability of innovators and technologists who um, have skin in the game and who do all of our technology due diligence, but more importantly, also work closely with our stakeholders, especially our portfolio companies to uh, ideate and execute uh, value creation plans that are technology driven. And it's that combination of uh, investment operating and innovation expertise that I think is truly unique. Um, And what it gives motive is a context and conviction that comes from deep industry intimacy, if you will, that really creates investment edge. Because when you have all of that capacity in-house, you know, complexity becomes your friend, you're no longer afraid of it. Um, Businesses that are stagnated or underloved or underinvested in can be renovated uh, in ways to drive extraordinary value creation and innovation can be injected, whether that's because we're investing in super early stage companies uh, and their founders or buying products uh, and services from those companies and, and using them for more mature businesses who can be their critical early customers and create value for both parties uh, in that way. Um, and that combination is, is you know, really about going deep in your sector uh, and knowing it. And that's what differentiates Motive. Um, it's, it's really a unique model and it involves also a number of partnerships with our our, our LPs. Uh, we have LPs like every uh, professional uh, investment firm, but many of those P's are also strategic LPs who work jointly with us on driving digital transformation through the industry that we are collectively a part of. So our partnership with Apollo, and more recently our partnership was announced with ABN AMRO, two firms who uh, are deeply interested in innovation, uh, and digital transformation driving change in their sector and who work with us in our portfolio companies uh, to effectuate that. Super exciting stuff actually. Good example in terms of success stories in the portfolio, um, I'll give you one in particular, um, I, a young company uh, that we uh, came across in Cork in Ireland, all places, um, not a renowned you know, fintech center by any means. Um, but they global shares were a share plan administration uh, business operated in a software platform that simplified and assisted corporations, both public and private, on administering share plans for their employees and stakeholders. And many people, of course, saw that as being a software business, a nice SaaS business that could earn uh, relatively sticky subscription fees from its corporate customers from performing a you know critical function that's that's important to those companies you know what motive saw was of course that but much more interestingly a gigantic wealth uh, creation engine and a window into that uh, wealth creation and how to serve that wealth opportunity so of course the interesting thing about Um, employees that own shares in companies where they work, whether they be private or or public companies, is that um, that wealth, which is very often um, tied up in the near term, uh, vests and delivers and liquefies over the longer term, you know, through IPOs and and ultimately the ability of the the employee to monetize uh, what they have accumulated uh, as employees. And that creates new wealth customers and so you know this business was ultimately invested in you know by us so that it could it could strengthen its uh, technology capabilities it could win business it could add clients but where it ultimately was destined in our view was to be owned by someone with a gigantic wealth network who saw the opportunity uh, in serving uh, a future generation of wealth Uh, in the form of employees and you know hearing that it won't surprise you that ultimately it was sold to JP Morgan who of course qualify exactly for having that kind of a um, wealth network and platform uh, and who saw that opportunity uh, just as we did and uh, and ultimately have been very pleased with uh, what was an incredibly successful exit uh, for Motive was an incredibly successful entry for JP Morgan. And it was seeing that potential in a in a small local business in Cork in Ireland uh, that I think is just a, a classic part of the Motive story that, you know, by the way, I had nothing to do with it. It was not my deal and I watched with with great um, admiration as the vision played out. But I think it's an absolutely excellent example of the sort of value that, that Motive likes to find and, and is able to help execute.
0: You, know, you mentioned Rob's background in CS- CLS and your background in trading, You know, Motive's been pretty active in the capital market space. You know, Looking at some of the companies in your portfolio, such as Forge, Truman, and L Markets, it's really a recurring theme. At a high level, what is your thesis for evaluating opportunities in this space, and why is it an interesting space for capital deployment? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, the, the place to start, first of all, is, is
1: the capital markets segment is absolutely gigantic. It's, you know, along with wealth and asset management, and and they're obviously related spaces uh, with some areas of overlap. This is these are two of the biggest segments within fintech broadly defined or financial technology broadly defined, and they're characterized by, uh, in the case of capital markets, a bewildering mm. degree of complexity, high degree of um, systemic risk and criticality to the industry that they serve, a surprising level of fragmentation, uh, an enormous amount of inefficiency. And that fragmentation inefficiency leads to enormous reconciliation needs and other things that um, essentially uh, involve market participants spending a lot of time in very un added services that aren't about advice, execution, or the deployment of capital, but are about accounting, reporting, and reconciling differential records of the same thing, and so this space is also ripe for disruption uh, and for the growth of um, businesses that operate as large platforms that their customers by enabling their customers uh, to process co- using common or shared or outsourced infrastructure. I think it's very interesting. We've seen uh, some some very significant uh, transactions in the capital markets arena. Um, recently most notably Nasdaq's acquisition of Adenza which was a a very eye-popping move, Um, big valuation of course, but also very interesting to see a market infrastructure that most people think of as really being a operator of an execution venue involving its business, into being a technology provider in the broadest sense of the word to its uh, global broad and diverse customer base. And that's a great example of uh, the kind of disruption uh, to come in capital markets. Um, You're gonna see big consolidation um, of service providers. You're gonna see the development of platform businesses whose value in large part derives from the data and increasingly the analytics, especially the artificial intelligence-driven analytics um, that could be run across those data platforms uh, that seek to personalize uh, the services, uh, introduce uh, preemptive predictive um, analytics rather than reactive um, after the fact uh, solutions that automate uh, many services and allow the providers of services and capital markets to focus on doing what they do best and what they should be doing. Just deploying capital and credit and advice and execution, and not reporting and accounting and tax and allocation and reconciliation. So these are the things that we look for uh, in terms of opportunities in 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 capital markets, and and also similarly um, in the area or arenas where these um, overlap with wealth and. You know, combined with all of that, is the is the the you know, driving force of electronification of of different asset classes. You know, it, it started off in equities many years ago and has um, swept through foreign exchange and more recently fixed income, including uh, corporate bond markets, and is now uh, beginning uh, to take place in alternatives and private equity, um, and obviously also in. Um, uh, climate-related commodities. Um, uh, electronification is is driven by um, typically uh, the f- front office, but also uh, the need for efficiency in post-trade, which is a, a large area of uh, inefficiency in in capital markets. Um, as, as more activity is conducted uh, over um, electronic uh, formats, um, processes become easier and then you have regulatory change in the space as well so the coming uh attraction in may of next year of t plus one you know which was already on the back of a big shift from you know to t plus two is going to put a lot of pressure on the industry uh to be able to do all the bad things that have to happen between trade date and settlement date in capital markets in far less time um the only way you can solve those problems is by uh Driving technology deployment to reduce the level of errors, breaks, you know, unreconciled, unconfirmed, unaffirmed activity, which is what causes the delay between T and S trade and settlement. Also, other initiatives like the SEC's initiative to uh, bring greater disclosure to some of the more opaque areas of capital markets, including the SPAC market, the securities lending activities, and, and many other areas. Not to mention crypto and blockchain. So lots of stuff going on in capital markets that really can only get addressed with the deployment of technology. And so, uh, you know, it's a big space, uh, still fragmented, still inefficient, lots of regulatory change. Um, Financial technology is going to play a big part in the solution to a lot of these challenges, not to mention the need for cost reduction uh, and freeing up capital.
0: So that's why we think it's a really interesting space. You know, you briefly alluded to AI in you know in that response, and it's definitely been top of mind these days. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how, how have large established financial institutions responded to this, and are you seeing this impact the way things are done at Motive and at your portfolio companies? I mean, th- this is this is going to prove to
1: be as significant a tipping point. The industry as the advent of the internet was and the advent of mobile computing. You know, there's obviously a lot of hype in and around the space, but in this case, I would say there's more substance than hype. It has already had a profound impact uh, and is going to have a greater impact on our industry. Um, From the point of view of motive as a as a private equity and, and venture investor, we have to think about this topic in at least three simultaneous dimensions, maybe more, but at least three. The first one is, you know, what does this mean for our current and prospective portfolio companies? How do we, and they, and how do we help them assess the threats and opportunities to their business model and do that in a comprehensive fashion that is effective and actionable and so we've begun the process as you might expect as given how I described uh, you know our operating model and our in-house technology capabilities we as you might expect have in-house specialists in this field that we have pointed at our portfolio companies uh, who are systematically working with those companies to identify um, threats and opportunities and uh, prioritize those and execute them. Uh, So that's a whole body of work. We're creating tooling and processes that are repeatable and we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we encounter this type of question. And increasingly, uh, we're seeing opportunities to work at the margins between our portfolio companies where they have the opportunity to work as commercial partners to each other. Uh, And often AI is a big part of, of harnessing that. We also, of course, uh, invest in venture and early stage companies, and many of them are increasingly AI focused or, or AI specialists, and they are bringing new products and capabilities to our more mature portfolio companies, which is great to see. So that's a whole, you know, one body, you know, body of, of work. And you know, I'll give you an example: is you know, some of the older mission critical infrastructures that we operate in the wealth and capital market space, for example, in Clearing capabilities, or in post-trade services for separately managed account and UMAs and things like that. A lot, uh, some, you know, some of some of these um, uh, systems are written in in you know outdated you know code like Cobalt that is uh, in need of replacement, and the opportunity to use generative AI to systematically rewrite old code and replace it with modern code cost effectively is an area of keen interest and exploration for us presently. I know of one, you know, major financial institution that is already citing that somewhere in the zip code of a third, somewhere between a third and a half of the new code that is getting written in their institution is being written using mm. generative AI in whole or in part, which is, you know, impressive. Um so that that'd be an example. That other would be um, uh, more about you know revenue generation opportunities as opposed to efficiency creation opportunities. So how can we how can we produce better products um, by using AI co-pilots to um, enable salespeople to be better sellers or service providers and call centers to be better uh, problem solvers and so on. These sorts of things, these use cases are abound that's a huge body of work for us and for Motive Create, our in-house technology teams. Uh, the second thing is, is you know, how do we develop uh, investment thesis uh, around, you know, what are the kind of attributes that makes AI or an AI company or or a company with AI com- aspects to it investable and attractive? Um, so we've done a huge body of work on developing our investment thesis in uh, around AI, and essentially the the you know the finding we have is that you know the owner of data is king. You know AI, of course, is useless if it's if it's not trained on um, data that's um, accessible and coherently organized, and 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 more importantly, that belongs to you. Um, and uh, we find that in the financial services space. Um, AI solutions, you know, need to reside to be effective, need to reside in the hands of those that have typically a combination of a proprietary data set, um, that they have some kind of realistic moat around, um, to create competitive advantage. And, um, and then on top of that, they have, they need to have domain specific, um, knowledge and tooling derived from that knowledge and, and solutions based on that knowledge. In other words, what we're not real great big fans of is super smart teams of data scientists that have been brought together you know, to form an AI company, and they're kind of doing build it and they will come without really understanding the problem set that they're seeking to solve. Um, so software is getting verticalized, if you will, um and we're much more interested in AI applications in, in vertical context than we are in you know, broad horizontal usages. Doesn't mean there isn't value to be created there. I mean, obviously you look at you know what OpenAI has done and what Microsoft has done with Mo- OpenAI open AI that that has uh you know truly um extraordinary value creation. Uh it's just that where we see the real applications in financial services, you need you need real domain specificity. Um so lots of work around the the investment thesis. Uh, and then the the third thing is, you know how does motive itself use AI to be better investors? Um, and you know we have uh, you know a big team of in-house um, team members multidisciplinary across all of our functions from our investment teams, both venture and growth and buyout, our finance and operations teams, our investor relations teams you know, working on developing tooling to make ourselves uh, better investors. You know, we, we built a tool, for example, um, that scrapes uh, internal and external data sources. So think, you know, LinkedIn, PitchBook, Crunchbase, those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, combines it with, you know, uh, a, a pitch deck and whatever other internal information we have on a company and actually drafts for our analysts a, a, a draft investment memo um, that addresses you know uh, a summary of the investment proposition you know key due diligence areas for follow up um, competitive positioning uh, defensiveness analysis you know I could go on but it's pretty extraordinary uh, how well connected the founders are who else they might be seeking to raise capital from based on who they you know what their connections are it's pretty it's pretty unbelievable what you can do and this this allows the analysts to spend you know 80 percent of their time now on doing the hard work which is you know asking and getting an answered the difficult questions and instead, instead of 80 percent of their time gathering all of that information before they then spend 20 percent of their time on the hard work which is incredibly interesting and similarly you can imagine that motive is sitting on a massive goldmine of under data in the form of all the, the commercial due diligence reports we have, the pitches, the banker uh, decks, the research in, uh, that, that we have, and it's all sitting in attachments in people's emails and doing the work to create a coherent data architecture internally. So you can actually run unstructured data queries like, you know, what is the, I don't know, TAM of core banking software in North America? becomes something that takes a couple of seconds instead of a couple of hours. And that's trivializing the the, the quality of of what you can do there. So lots and lots and lots and lots of implications. Uh, We're spending an enormous amount of time, hours and hours of every day at the moment, I would say, um, on this very topic. Really, really, really interesting stuff.
0: Well, Blythe, we're, we're time, but this has been a truly fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And and thanks for great questions and um, for asking me to join. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review and subscribe to our show. And as always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Sevilla. Until next time, this is your host, Rayad Barney.